Hello and welcome. My guest today is Brian Peters. Brian is a former NFL linebacker, and now he runs the Chasing Edges podcast, where he talks about the latest in high performance. And in this conversation, Brian talked about the habits that make him who he is, why journaling, breath work, ice, and sauna have played such critical roles in his life, and what getting cut from not only the NFL, but also three or four different leagues before the NFL has taught him about himself. Thank you to Bryant Ferrate for making this episode come to life. It is only from seeing his Spotify recapped and seeing who he's listened to the most that I actually reached out to Brian because I wanted to make the connection. So thank you to Brian. And I have one ask from you, and that is to share this podcast. If you share it, it'll help the podcast grow and it'll mean the world to me. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, text messages. Please share the podcast. That's how it grows. That's how more people hear about it. This is a little preview of what to expect with Brian Peters. I would challenge people when you initially get the thought to go do something or create something or move or work out or eat healthy, whatever it is, to fucking go. And Mm. because you need to realize who you're fighting and you're fighting your physiology. And the reason you're fighting your physiology is because we live in a world now where everything, all of our bare necessities are handed to us. Brian Peters, welcome to the podcast. So grateful and honored for you to be here. I really appreciate you. Easy, man. I'm excited to join. Brian, what is it actually like to play in the NFL? Because there's a lot of people out there who's watching. They're, they're, when kids are growing up in the United States of America, they're saying to themselves, oh, I'd like to do that someday. I know in 6th, 7th, 8th grade, I was like, oh, I'd like to play in the NFL someday. What is it actually like? What's it actually like to be in the NFL? Yeah, it's uh, pretty cliche to say it's a dream come true in that essence. But I, I took the scenic route to get there too. And I didn't grow up dreaming to be an NFL football player. I actually wanted to be an MLB baseball player. And I just knew I could perform at that level probably since I was young. Um, so the really just the manifestation of that 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 same moment despite not like dreaming of that as a kid but it's still people feel it in different ways shapes and forms some people say like the only other times outside of like playing pro football is like having a kid or being married like that level of high so like it's a sensation thing where it's I think anybody that puts a lifetime of work together and then gets to reap the rewards even if it's just one game of the crowd cheering I think, and like putting the jersey on and telling the story to your kid or whoever one day, like I think that is how it feels, I guess. Like I think everybody can relate to that, whether like whatever they put their heart and soul into for years and years and years and it materializes, like that's the like the exuberance you feel. And then it's just like outside of that, it's still same thing. Like it, I think people put it too high on a platform. Honestly, it's just a bunch of guys being dudes and a bunch of really high performers. And you see the separation and great performers and you see um, why people wash out. Same same as other any other industry. And then even like socially, like sometimes football players get a bad name and there's the stereotypes of big dumb jock and those kind of things. But I've met some of the most incredibly intelligent folks in a locker room and it's the same, again, same outside, like it's the same sample of another industry where like 
yeah, they're 95% great humans. There's some bad humans everywhere. And then there's some just amazing, incredible humans there too. So it's just like, I think, uh, I think if like people, I, people love the sport and respect it and see all um, the flash and the glitz and glamour and money and contracts and all that kind of stuff. But I, I still think that respecting the humans that are playing and understanding that it's just like a bunch of people pursuing and working their butt off and uh, to like earn an income and live a dream. Granted, it's a kid's game amplified into like a multi-billion dollar platform, but it's still just, again, it's a, a bunch of guys trying to do their best and they're winging it and pursuing and being curious and competing. And I think every human's do every, every human's winging it. And I, I think people lose sight of that sometimes when they look at NFL players. Yeah, that makes sense. What's it, what's going through your head the first time you step on an NFL field? Uh, I mean, it's, the, probably the first time is probably like the juiciest the like juiciest event where it's just like okay like oh shit like let's go and it's just like and you just got to go and like I was lucky my first play was a kickoff so I just like that that's an all gas no breaks kind of play so I just uh buckled up and when I actually made my the first play I made the tackle on kickoff so I was hyped wow. up but yeah but then after that it's um it's funny how much the crowd and everything washes away and you're trying to communicate, you're trying to execute, you're trying to use best practices and improve and adapt throughout the game. And like people, like I get asked a lot here, like how crazy was it with the noise and all these kind of things. And you really don't even hear stuff. Like you hear like communication on your team and you're literally just out there doing a job and trying to execute. It's fun for sure. There's a lot of fun jobs, but like it's, um, I think it's pretty cool how many people can put, or like just the, how the environment and the task at hand can put blinders on you. You you mentioned you made a tackle in your first ever play. That's pretty wild. And then I think in 2015, you actually led the NFL in special teams tackles. Is that correct? Yes, sir. It's like, what what does that feel like? Because it, it must be, was that something you were really proud of? And was that something that was an accomplishment that you were like, wow, like, I can't believe I did this? Or I'm, I'm, how did that imprint on you after that happened? Yeah, and I funny thing is I actually didn't even know that till after the last game that I played. It, it wasn't I wasn't like measuring myself against others and there's there's a cool little lesson for me in that ascent in, mm-hmm. or in that aspect where I had some really good coaches where initially when I got there, I got there late too. I only played 12 of the 16 games that season. So like I was on pace to like uh like have that title kind of in essence. I think I was tied for the title that year, but um, but besides the point, uh, I had really good coaches that like kept my head down and focused me on the task and my task and my niche that I walked into with the Texans was special teams. And so that's kickoff, kickoff, return, punt, punt, return. Um, and really the only statistic there that shows up on a stat line is tackles. And, mm-hmm. and the, the aspect that I, I was hot on when I came down there is they didn't have any leaders, um, in the special teams department and I came from a really great program with the Minnesota Vikings that off season. And I just like, I saw the void, I grasped and I, I went and worked and the coaches uh, steered me towards that leadership role. And then they just, they poured gas on the fire and like Mike Vrabel, I, I tell this story a decent amount where it's, uh, I enjoy it, but like we we're sitting there a couple and I was new. I, I, my cr- football career, I transitioned, I played safety in college and then I used, this whole saga of a story to through the a, Arena Football League, United Football League, Canadian Football League for three years, um, back to the NFL. I used that time to turn into a linebacker and gain 20 pounds and 
get faster, stronger. And but like I wasn't a veteran, experienced linebacker. I was still learning some of the nuances of the position. But when I got down there, like I, I was kind of sitting there and I like didn't understand one of the run plays. And it was just me and him. He stayed late to break down film with me, and he he kind of just like turned turned over to me like we're both sitting there, both just uh, chugging caffeine, watching film at like seven thirty at night. And he goes, Peters, he goes, you're either you're either going to be the best linebacker, or you can do something different. And he goes, you better do something different, bud. And and he goes, he goes, he goes, you need to take the reins on special teams. And so like three games in down there, when I was just worried about making the team and like or not making the team, but maintaining my position on the team because I was on the practice squad in Minnesota and got signed off week like after week three by the Houston Texans. And that was a cool point in my career anyways, where I had to gamble on myself because the Vikings were offering to like pay me full active salary. So like half a million dollars to stay uh, in Minnesota on their practice squad, not active, not the ability to accrue anything for like 401k and anything, whatever. But it was basically a guaranteed half million dollars, or I could take the opportunity to go down and be on the Texans active roster. And their only requirement is to me uh, to keep me for three games. So I can like pan out or not pan out. And like, that's a like that. And, that, and for me, like I was based my agent, like I didn't even get a chance to talk to coaches in Minnesota. He like, I hopped in an Uber and went to the airport and we're figuring it out and talking to coaches on both teams on the way down. And in essence, like I had the choice between half a million dollars guaranteed or this $3 million or this, sorry, probably like, I don't know, like 45 K to go and basically try out on active roster. And, but the little nuance in there is they don't even active roster is only 46 of the 53. So seven guys don't even dress. So I could have been there and they picked up somebody else and I was gone. And I got on, I think I was just soul searching at, uh, at the airport and my buddy called me and he goes, um, dude, what are you doing? Like you spent three years in three different leagues to go play in the NFL, not practice in the NFL. And I was like, my guy clicked the phone and hopped on the plane and, and it worked out where, but like, I was still in the phase when Vrabel gave me that advice that like the GM was like the GM and the pro personnel guy were still walking by me in the cafeteria and saying, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work with your hands more if you want to stick around. And they're keeping that fire lit just out of fear. And then, but Vrabel, uh, then we had a coach league, our special teams coach at the time. They just, they, they locked me in, kept my head down. And it like that year just kind of took care of itself. The, the advice of you have to be the best or be different is something I think I saw you tweet about as well. Yeah. So it clearly stuck with you at a deep level. How do you then take that and apply that lesson from the NFL to then post-NFL? Yeah, and it's a great lesson. Just like I do think the quotations on the best should be there because like best is always going to be subjective in that sense of like – like it does, you don't have to be the most productive to be the best, and like that's why I have I like the nuance of do something different, or even like the Naval, Naval Ravikant bit, who's one of my favorite humans, where he like you cannot you can be the best at something by refining yourself so particularly that nobody can compete with you, and then I I get into the nuance of like everyone is actually incredibly unique and authentic. Everybody every human on the planet is a one time phenomenon in this world. And so we're already, already unique. And our problem is we compare and contrast and start doing this hierarchy and I'm the best. I'm only third best shit. Like, and it just go and it gets into this. Um, it's not like it, there's a variant of anal analysis by paralysis there. But like the, the problem with that is that we're not looking at 
the gifts that we do bring to the table and we try and fit ourselves in these cookie cutters. And, and that's where like I, when I'm coaching guys and like I'm addressing myself, I'm not always striving to be, be the best. Sometimes there's always more tactics than just like the one, it's not, it's like a, like you don't just have a hammer and everything's a nail. You literally have options always. And one of the best options is to be uniquely yourself. And if you can sit still and listen to yourself and realize what you really want, now you can start refining and now you can start separating yourself. And you, you are, everybody is separated, but it's just, uh, it's funny how quickly we can get that confused. Yeah. Well, our society has set us up so that we are on the conveyor belt from the time we're in kindergarten. Everyone goes to first grade. Everyone goes to say, oh, you didn't go to eighth grade? What's wrong with you? Oh, but you know, your path is very much one of the, no one has had Brian Peters' path to the NFL or otherwise in general. So it, it raises, you knew you were different in some way because you were going to all these different leagues and with the hope or with the idea of one day making it to the NFL. So that, you know you're unique. What do you say to people who maybe are in college, graduating, and they're like, well, how? what do you mean I'm unique? Like, I've, I've just done the same exact things as everyone else. Yeah, and that's, uh, it's, a, it's a actually a really funny point where I just, like, as everybody transitions through life, I always, I always just stoke the fire of curiosity in them, but also, like, self-reflection massively, because, like, the only underlying thing that kept me going through all those through like three leagues and even getting cut in Minnesota. I mean, I got cut everywhere. I got cut in the UFO, got cut in the CFL. Um, got obviously been cut in the uh, NFL as well. But in that capacity, like it's uh, it's really about what you know about yourself, mm. and the, that's why knowing yourself is so important. Like I was lucky enough to get some like workouts right after I finished call. I got no calls on draft day and those kind of things, but I was lucky enough to work out for some people. And through competitive comparison, I knew I could play. Hmm. And and that then like part of it, like part of this whole journey was like fear of being on the conveyor belt. So like I didn't want to have a normal job because I knew like my capability wasn't normal for some reason. It may have been psychosis in there <laughs> a little bit, but in that realm. I felt like I knew I could play and I needed another opportunity to kind of satisfy like my, what my view of my potential was. And I was willing to go to hell and back for it. And so I went through all these leagues and I played for $300 a week in the arena league. And I, and I got, I became my own agent, got myself to the Canadian league and things like that, where it's just like probably not normal or not like uh, on the cookie cutter path of, okay, college, I get my call on draft. I go to the NFL. Like it was, I wasn't lucky enough for that, but like, Again, life isn't fair in that capacity, but I I was able to will it to some extent, and opportunity shined, and I was prepared for them, so it ended up working out. What goes through your mind when you get cut? Um, the first, I mean, the first thing's like fuck, like it just it kind of stings, just because one of the hardest times getting cut for me was from the United Football League, the UFL, which a league that no longer exists, and it was a league I didn't want to be in, and. So, and the kind of this really weird transition between the UFL and the CFL, basically one, that first time being cut, I thought, uh, football is over. I was, I cried in my car after getting cut. I was like, I'm driving back to Chicago with no money in the bank and just like, Oh, I got to figure it out. I got to go get a normal job or whatever. And I was just de dealing with all the negative sides of failure. And, 
and then I was lucky enough. Eventually, I was working three jobs in Chicago, and then was lucky enough to my email got responded to by the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and I went to the CFL. But one one quick lesson I learned from getting cut from that job, basically getting cut from a job I didn't want, is to basically never be bigger than a job that I'm holding. Mm. Like because obviously the goal is the NFL. But I, I, you can't look over the step you're on. And so I started embodying who I was on in front of everybody and, and on every team. And and then kind of in that same essence is where my like I, my podcast, Chasing Edges, and my mindset and my company was born. Because and right when I got cut, I was like, I need to be better. How do I get better? I need to work on these, these X amount of things. And X amount of things wasn't just football tactics, skills, and strength. It was literally my entire perspective and every recovery modality I was using and how and budgeting how much money I needed to pay for all these things and that kind of thing so I just like I need to keep chasing edges and if I get all these edges stacked up and I, I can't remember what book I read but I learned about the aggregation of marginal gains I go there's not a big difference between me and these guys I got to close the space and so I was like I looked for every edge I had great doctors in my corner and I kept getting the opportunity and I when the opportunity came I was I made some plays and kept uh climbing that staircase yeah so uh, going back and on the piece of getting cut i remember very specifically getting cut from the seventh grade basketball team and just like i cried like i we can both relate to that feeling of like just being absolutely like your world is over in that moment and i'm curious like what do you think's going on there like why why do you think it hits us at such a deep level when we get cut particularly from a sports team yeah, I think it's just the meaning we put behind it, mm. and it's, and even so young, like I, I think it's great to be cut young, to honestly, just because it's like a grit concept where like you say like same as like your jobs as a kid are important. Uh, I just think uh, it teaches us really quick that we can't always get what we want, mm. but if it means something to us, you'll find it out, and like you'll pursue it and you'll solve the problem. Or like, or you'll start to separate yourself through specificity and become very uniquely different. Or, but like, I just think that low because like we're just still trying to find our identity that early. And when somebody tells you you're not good enough that early, like it's gonna shake your identity. Which sometimes that identity doesn't get shaken until after a guy finishes Division One mm. football, and and that kind of thing. Where it's like, okay, you can you can learn to adapt earlier. And just because of the system and the conveyor belt that we live on and no student left behind or all these other programs that just coddle people forwards i think the earlier exposure to that that failure i think will help you solve problems faster you become more adaptive faster because i like similar to you like i've heard a lot of very high performers have got i mean you see here the michael jordan story is one of the most infamous stories of getting cut and i think he was junior high or freshman year of uh, basketball whatever it was but like I think that like literally builds monsters like and that's where like if you can because like m most of the most resilient players I've been around too like some come from all different backgrounds but they all have a narrative that was rooted in failure mm. even like the JJ Watts of the world like went to Central Michigan playing tight end like didn't didn't like the fit went back and grinded and found some grit delivering pizzas and then obviously it became the legend that he is and Michael Jordan stands out like those kind of things but like I literally have different high school friends that got like my first year playing football I made the team and one of my buddies like one of my best friends who've been playing since he could ever put pads on got cut but like that fueled his massive monster in him and he became a great player and so just like I, I think people don't respect 
the the obstacles and the, the adversity that does show up but I mean, we can't see that when we're that young. We're just crushed and ashamed and like, and have to figure out if you're really not good enough and you're going to quit or you're going to keep, uh, go, go play in the rec league for a year, hone your skills and come back. Yeah. I mean, in that moment in seventh grade for me, it was like, I didn't even know there was a possibility to get better. So like, it, it was just like, all right, this is the way it is. I didn't know like, oh, if I put in the work towards something, I'm going to get better at it. And if I spend more time on it, it just didn't click for me like that at that young. And it, it's just, it's interesting. Like when, when we talk, when we speak about adversity I, and we speak about the things that you are currently overcoming in the past year, what has been the biggest adversity that you've had to really try to get to the next level on? Yeah. One of the biggest pieces of adversity has been, uh, as far as business relationships, it stands out the mm. biggest, uh, my business partner, where we started the MindStrong project together, he like we basically built it from nothing from like 2015, 16 on, and we got some success in the the coaching, breathwork, and physiology, and then got like basically we got to where we wanted to be, and he chose to leave, and I had put a lot of trust and support in, in that realm and understanding like what a business relationship and a partner and a teammate do, and I realized how in essence, unprepared I was in the world of business where I was still applying tools from sports that didn't apply to the rules of business. And so in that realm, like I, I reevaluated how I approach business partners. Like it's no longer just a teammate mentality. Like there's, there's boundaries. And like, I, like, I, like I, I still, I still believe some people say you can't do business with friends, but I do thoroughly believe that like it is possible, but you have to do it in the right manner. And I just I just did that with blinders on and in some capacity, so I was a little shell shocked, um, in essence, because it was part of the company that was leaving. But not, but it also I know adversity. I've been here before, and I I got back into my my sink of applying skills and learning knowledge and um, basically getting my feet back on the ground. And now it, we're just I'm wheeling and dealing and building out a new company where I, again, I thoroughly enjoy the control and direction. So it's, again, it's a blessing too. So it's, uh, it's been, it's been fun, but like, that's probably the biggest adversity uh, I've faced this, this past year, just because, uh, it's probably the biggest shock as far as, um, uncertainty goes and, and the realm of like what relationships stay, what relationships go, um, even with our clients, like how, how do we divvy that kind of concept up and who can say whose name and all this. It was just a, it was a mess, but it, it ended up being a really cool opportunity for me to grow. What's the difference between uh, teamwork or, or teammates in business and teammates in the NFL or in football? Yeah, I, I think like obviously like everybody like in essence like everybody's rowing the ship and sports like obviously you're getting paid from an entity as opposed to like generating income and like trying to divvy up equity on the team. It's not like the quarterback who gets paid twenty five million actually uh, does twenty five percent of the work or something like that. You know, I I don't know a better analogy for it right there. But yeah, there's just way more in depth variables than understanding again a conveyor belt where you know how in essence how everybody is acting and the direction everybody's going because the structure's built in you have the boundaries on what we're struggling for how we're going to get there what problems and questions are going to come up in generality and when business translates there's 
people like I, I think there's there's obviously selfishness in football and that kind of deal too but the understanding of people's wants and needs and what they're getting at and then also after dealing with who gets credit um who created this how to tangibilize intangibles in the what in the realm of equity i think was a, a a big separator where like everybody really knows their equity because the team dictates it or they brought you there based on this value and then now you get there's comp- there's competition in there to earn opportunities the same as there is in like a two-man business um but i thought that was that was definitely a separator but uh as far as business goes i i do think the the level of trust is uh, different than like trusting a guy to make the call here and there where like we had in my business experience again very limited um, but we had both very similar skill sets and we didn't have to communicate in the essence of like the the product or and the service we had to communicate on all the things that each of us either didn't want to do or or like it became like a, a tipping balance of who's doing the things that nobody wants to do so I learned how to communicate outside of like a sports environment to get these goals completed but it just ended up being more friction where even like looking back and i journaled through all this whole probably majority of the five years um the problem has the problems that led to this this event eventually have been going on the whole time and i just turned a blind eye to it just because i was in essence trying to compensate for the time where i was playing football and wasn't like an active member and generating income for the company, just attention and support. And so, so now it just turned into like my own self analysis. Journaling something that when I was doing research for this, you bring up time and time again, it seems like it's been a really pivotal part of your life. Why has journaling played such a role and how do you, how do you journal effectively? Yeah. And again, like it's kind of like, telling somebody to meditate you don't want to program anybody to figure out how their journal works for them you just expose them to the to the magic of it and it, it takes with some it take it doesn't take with others but it's it's trial and error for a long time but i learned really on, like early on that like i carried a lot of weight on my shoulders as far as like trying to solve a lot of problems at a lot of t- like all the time and just starting the journal as literally i just one of the easiest things i do is ask myself why i feel these things and I just keep playing the why game and work myself through my problems and this is before I uh, attempted therapy in that essence not attempted therapy but Mm -hmm. went to therapy to again try and get new structures for uh, my solutions in my head and so the one of the first things I got I just felt better after I journaled and I was able to come to some solutions because I didn't realize oh I'm probably getting frustrated because I'm actually like I like a lot of your interactions are mirrors of what you like your insecurities are in that realm so I was getting mad when people weren't doing what I hypocritically wanted to be doing and this is early on and then as I grew through it I went through gratitude phases in my journal I went through action I went through journaling at night and holding my day under review I did this whole massive variant and then now I just constantly, my big thing with, with the journaling, even with the guys I coach in that realm is the constant revisiting of your purpose, your why, what you're willing to struggle for. I think one of the biggest things, like complacency and di- distraction breeds everywhere in our society right now and everywhere in high competition and high performers. And if you're trying to do big things, particularly professional sports or business executives, which are most of my clientele in that realm, you got to know why you're doing it to keep gas on the fire. And like if you have built in responsibility where, you know, you have to perform to it, it's obviously effective, too. But I think revisiting that purpose and 
even trying to like negotiate through it and add that more value to it and attach more meaning to things in your life. I think that's a worthy endeavor in the realm where it's like basically like who am I like what is my purpose and then in essence where am I going and what am I doing about it and life's not too much more complicated than that in that realm so but the more and constant like the constant ask of that and I like guys to establish like kind of how I approach some because I am a breathwork and mental skills coach in that realm most people I, I come to me or I go and speak it primarily about breathwork and physiological control for state control in essence in their system. But after it doesn't take me a long time to articulate the skills and give guys protocols in that realm. So if they keep working with me, it bleeds quickly into life coaching and philosophy and competitive mindset stuff, because you can't really even talk about physiology without talking about psychology. So it's kind of like this merging of worlds and how I approach it with my guys and my girls, et cetera is like uh have you ever heard the i think it's a parable of the the rottweiler and the king's jewels no i don't think so so it's a cool little it's just a cool little nuance where um basically this king kept kept being robbed and uh people were taking things from him so he started putting all his necklaces and his rings and his jewels on this rottweiler at night and then obviously nobody kept stealing the jewels so in that realm like i'm the rottweiler for my athletes and my clients in that realm where tell me your goals and tell me your values and your standards, I'll hold on to those and I'm going to hold them accountable. Nobody's going to steal them, but most of all, you're not going to steal them from yourself. And because like, again, like the, the distractions and the drift to failure that occurs in life and anything in standards, whether it's like your health production, finances, whatever it is, like it's really easy um, to that, that get lost out of this purpose lane that I like to talk about. But in that realm, like, People need a people need a pit bull. People need a Rottweiler to hold on to their to their stuff and protect it because like life is chaotic, and so in that realm, like yeah, journaling is a way to do that and be that Rottweiler for yourself. And then the the coolest part about it and like that the reason why I want everybody to journal is you're keeping your your personal history of your your perspective and we like to track everything we like to track heart rate we like to we like to track our bank account we like to track what how many followers we have whatever downloads you know the drill but but we don't track our human perspective and it's so subjective day to day based off our sleep based off of who comes into our lives all these things but like how the events of the world are changing our perspective changes and the coolest thing that I've seen is like going back and seeing that I've solved some of my problems or that I still have the same problem. And then there's like, so it's just like that person, no, nobody else is going to write your personal history for you unless you go win like Super Bowls, you become like an autobiography worthy human, you know? So like, why would you not write it for yourself? And now, like if now we start getting that circle a little wider, why, I'm writing it for my loved ones to like, mm-hmm. one evaluate my relate our relationships in real time and where can I be better for them or add value or how much do I love them and why and like just articulating that reminds you of the value and meaning of that relationship so I think it's really powerful in that essence but it just kind of goes overlooked at times where the there's there's a couple I found some nuanced stories too with I had a Bert Soren on my podcast a while back and one of his buddies um so older guy thing he's in his 50s journaled for like five minutes every day in his phone in his notes to his kids um just telling hey why am i proud of my kids today why do i love my kids and then he unfortunately passed away like very suddenly and his kids found the notes and literally years and years of notes to his kids that 
like that meant the world to them. And I'm not saying like everybody has to journal just for their kids or anything like that. But like, I would like, I, I freaking love my grandpa. He's one of the biggest influences on my life. Lost him way too soon to different cancers from smoking and all those kind of things. But I would give the world if he kept a journal, I would love to know what he thought and how he thought because in the very microscopic amount of time that I got with him in the scheme of things, like I learned so much just from his like simple, clean view of life. And so like, I just think that that he refined that some way, shape or form. I'd love to know how he got there. And I, I mean, the same like podcast, a version of that where you can get some of that out of people. So like, I, I hope everybody has a podcast. I hope everybody keeps a journal, but I hope my loved ones and like people I care about and want to succeed have that value in their life. And at the cost of five to 10 minutes a day, I, th- I think is worth it. And just the ability to track your subjective uh, experience to go back, like that makes more sense to me too, just in the essence where people, I, our memory just plays these massive tricks on us where we don't even remember everything accurately or we try and, and our, our memory gets handcuffed by our vocabulary too, where you you asked me about my first, like playing in the NFL, like I wish I would have journaled more about that mm-hmm. because I, I could go back and tell you accurately, first person and now, now I have to go back well, I mean, it was in Atlanta. It was fun. Like, yeah, I made the first tackle. How was I feeling? Like, did I really break this down? Like, or is, like, am I remembering, remembering? And that's like 18 words to describe one of my favorite experiences on the planet. And that sucks. So like to go back and like, okay, I can go through this whole deal and I can know how I felt and I can tell, I can probably tell the story better. And maybe I want to tell my story someday. So how, like, here's the accurate and like, so I just, again, I'm ranting, but it's important just because I think it's super valuable it can, and people just overlook it because it, I don't know, it gets linked in with diarying, being <laughs> like carrying a diary sometimes, but I, uh, big proponent and I just think people sleep on the value of it, but particularly high performers, I think it's, a uh, a lot of high performers are pretty private humans, mm. so they won't trust people outside of their small circle at times. So I, I treat it as a therapist and like I even like I went to therapy as I was transitioning out of football just because I was getting frustrated with myself and my structures and my habits that I'd like I'd let slip and I, really I just the questions I was asked and there spurred like thousands of questions in my soul and the only place I, I, the only person I want to talk to about it was myself mm-hmm. so I went I just kept writing and I kept writing and I went through some some like old school Tony Robbins visualizations where I'm writing like five, 10, 15 pages, just about the, the girl I want to date or mm. the life I want to live or the house I want to live in and just like getting tangible visions of that. And then I kind of found my own tools in that while I'm coaching clients where it's like, we'll do we'll do a one year visualization. I want seven pages on all these, these four things. And then they read them out loud. Again, I'm the Rottweiler, I'm protecting it. Like, no, like, like, a, like I'll sign NDAs if I have to, it doesn't matter, like all the, all these things, but I can look at your vision in the future, like your perfect day in the future is a very easy one to do. What's your perfect day a year from now? Like when you wake up, like what are the colors of the sheets? What what girl am I next to? What am I saying to her? Like what are the like what am I eating for breakfast? Like who do I talk to? Who's my best friend? Like how do I speak to my kids? Whatever it ends up being, but like incredibly de- like incredibly detailed. I can pull so many physiological things that I can apply to your life right now that I know calm you down, bring you peace or what you want. 
And so like now you can start giving people tools from these visualizations and like, and then also it's the same as goal setting. It shows you the difference between where you are, and where you want to be. You're not having these relationships and these interactions right now. You're not going to this job is usually a big one, things like that, where it's just like, okay, something to think about. But it's also, again, you need to sit down and invest in yourself and your perspective and where you're going and always return to it. And now these visualizations get more tangible and real. When you went to therapy and you said there was a bunch of different questions that they asked you that made you your head go in a thousand different directions and really enlightened you to your own reality. As somebody who loves questions myself, I'm curious if any of those come to mind or were incredibly helpful. You just mentioned a few in that it was, what's your perfect day look like? That's a great question to get you in the right frame of mind. But are there any other questions that come to mind that help you achieve or go into a different mental state? Yeah. And, uh, the, I mean, the therapist was awesome. She, uh, it's, it's funny what they can, like, it's more or less. And I, I kind of do it when I, when I talk to some, uh, of my different clients in that realm where like, usually like you could one, the person will tell you where they're struggling. And then two, like you can learn really quick that like we're in our own way. Mm. And because most of us have our own, the capability to solve most of our own problems, but we lack perspective. And it gets into the realm of like Einstein's quote where you can't solve a problem that was created with the same level of, or you can't solve a problem that was created with the same level of consciousness that created it. Mm. So you need to increase your consciousness. You need to increase your ability to ask yourself questions or learn and grow so that you can solve this problem without this same one lane that created it. So that was like a big thing for me where like, Honestly, like the therapist taught me to ask more questions to myself. And like so like some of the questions were like excuse me, like why were you ashamed of this? Why are you frustrated with this? And it was going through my emotional spectrum, like why does this like just literally every emotion in the book and then we just kept playing like in essence the why game there, which is what I'm doing in my journal, but a lot of it got back to like toughness, different variants of where I thought I was insecure couldn't like prove myself anymore because i didn't have football so in that realm but then the coolest part about it was understanding and this took me down my own psycho like psycho psychological endeavors and rabbit holes in essence because i was frustrated at how many of the things that i was holding on to and the like in essence the level of consciousness that i had that was because of things that happened when i was a child hmm. And that was the hardest thing pill for me to swallow because I've been such a person where it's like I have no responsibility to be who I was five minutes ago. I can recreate myself. I can do X, Y, and Z. But I held the same responses to different conflicts and scenarios that I just was unaware of. So I was increasing my consciousness by this game. So uh, a cool little deal is like looking back on your life and figuring out like where were you, in essence, like where were you ashamed, embarrassed, traumatic experiences and those kind of things and writing letters to the kid that was experiencing it. My problem, like I cried when I struck out till I was like 11, 12 years old, something like that. And like way too late, people stopped crying way earlier than that. And I was always ashamed of it. But really in my eyes, I wrote a letter back telling the kid that like, if I was coaching him right now, I was like, crying's awesome. Like cry, all you're showing me right now is that you care and that you care a lot. And so, okay, let's resolve that. Like, let's get over this like, this weak Brian that you ha you have to like overcompensate for and you don't have to be vulnerable for like, okay, now, okay, now we'll open the doors on that 
And then same with like relationships with my parents. My parents were awesome, but I kept, I kept resentments for weird reasons. Um, and again, just resolving that kind of those roots of some problems was massive for me. And, and like, again, like, like, on, like on paper, I probably looked like I was doing fine, but like, there's so many emotional levels to relationships and so many emotional levels to like your own personal progress and perspective, where I think the only way is to ask questions. And then the more I learned about psychology, the more I learned that like the brain deletes what doesn't keep it alive. Mm basically if it's not important to keep in life and death it deletes it and your brain like between all your senses takes in like 12 million bits of information and it only holds on to what keeps you alive and what you ask questions about and so now it's like okay questions are important and i just kept going down and down and down but yeah i I can't remember too many specific questions uh that my therapist asked but i just it's just a gauntlet of questions that stir up so many things and then they give the threads to pull at and i think we can do that to ourselves yeah the the threads towards uh childhood is something that i i keep drawing myself to from the negative of the negative experiences and the positive ones as well like oh wow i was doing this at this age and look where i've become and look at the relationship between that are there any positive childhood experience Positives, maybe not the right word, but are there any experiences in childhood that point to somebody who was interested in high performance or somebody other than sports, let's say, like, or anything come to mind in particular? Because sports is the obvious one, the the through line, but are there any other dots that connect? It's a, it's a vehicle, but I think, um, I mean, I, like I've seen it a bunch in the physiology world where people get all in on breath work because it helped them solve their asthma. Mm or or they had some traumatic throat thing where like they like their health just went to absolute dog shit because of these like different lymph problems in their neck and things like that but i think some of the best like the best high performers now have solved these problems really young and they've become problem solvers like kind of like we talked about earlier but i also think I think there's focus and concentration built into some of this, but the people that like kind of scratch their own itches and create and are able to go from zero to one on a product or an idea or a service or a podcast or whatever it ends up being, uh, I think those are like the high performers because they're in essence to overgeneralize it, they're solving a problem early and that can be sparked by like overcoming an asthma early or like I'm, I'm trying to make it positive. But um, in that positive, like winning something early, like the, those feelings and those endorphins and the dopamine and everything that comes from early success and celebrating your skill set, particularly through sports, but anything like I, like I had buddies that were like wicked smart and winning debate stuff in high school where like they got the same high from debate that I got from sports. And like it's all competition. And I, I think one of the biggest things is that the world is lacking is putting people under the spotlight. And in that realm, I think it's really important that we we, ke- we can keep showing up to work and we can keep showing up to practice. And but if you never put that stuff under the lights, it's never going to adapt fully. Mm. So so I call it the arena razor. We're like, OK, it's not like and I try and push people earlier than they're ready because every waits for the perfect time. But how fast can we put your skill under the lights? How fast can we compete at this new sport or this new hobby or put your art out into the world. Like if it's painting, painting, if it's a service, service, if it's a blog, blog, but like, I think it's really important to put things out there because that, that's the only way you're going to get one great feedback and two learn how to adapt. Faster. Why are we so scared to put ourselves, put our work, put our, ourself out there? 
Oh, I mean, that's a deep question. I don't, like, I don't even, uh, I, I think in essence, like the, the realm of competition, like in competition and presentation too, like, so don't get this twisted. I, I do you over abuse sports analogies, but I think the reason why we're scared to put anything out into the world is because we're uncertain of what we're going to get back. Mm. And that's, and that's competition. Like the, the competitive field is I say this all the time. Competitive field is massively vulnerable. It takes a lot of guts to go out there and put your entire soul on the line and somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose and it sucks. And so like, but it's, but it is vulnerability. Competition is vulnerability. Presentation of art and service or words is vulnerability. And our brains just absolutely hate uncertainty. And so, and I, and my biggest problem, like you see it so much in life where like, why is this person staying where they're at? Why is this person with all the good ideas not going and those kind of things? People like people call it fear of the unknown. And I hate that. Like it's they, you can't fear something you don't know. And like, and like, but that's also what makes sports glorious is because like, you don't know who's going to win and who's going to lose. That's why a million eyes tune in. But in essence, it's not that they fear the unknown. They fear leaving the comfort of the known because our brain and our physiology craves consistency and routine. And so we know where our next, obviously, life and death. We know where our next meal and everything's coming from. Really important. Our world's not built for this NFL platform or TED Talk or whatever. Like all these awesome platforms that share this, again, this grit and this knowledge and wisdom that people have accrued. But now it's the courageous idea to like, okay, anytime I feel this way, my physiology gets sympathetic, which like the butterflies in the stomach, the fear and all those kind of things people run from it like that's a that's a lighthouse sprint at that motherfucker and go and so now like i use those feelings as basically breadcrumbs to where i want to go where it's like people i've been like ryan holiday the obstacle is the way it's that same philosophy but i don't think people really know physiologically their feelings when like they those hold them back more than like like their ability to rationalize out of like yeah of course you have to like like if i want to have a business like people need to know i have a business (laughs) And or like I want to have a podcast. People need to know I have a mm. podcast, and people sh- sigh away from that or shy away from that so much that it. Uh, I mean, it it hurts. Like it hurts me to see people like back down on it. And when really, because uh, I think you posted some stats on it, but I saw like I had actually started a podcast um, under the name Leaders these days initially because I was really frustrated with um, basically how everybody was saying kids these days are the problem everything but the problem no leaders like created created and coddled this generation of human and it's on them to take responsibility fix the school system fix whatever needs to be fixed like toughen people up and and in essence so i got tired of that excuse so i wanted to learn about leaders and parents and all Mm. these things and i just found out like i wasn't incredible at talking about that but so i was probably like five episodes into that and i saw this stat uh, from like I think Apple or somebody pumped it out that like I want to say ninety ninety seven or some crazy stat that ninety seven percent of podcasts haven't produced more than two episodes and I was like mm. and I hadn't even released this first podcast yet and so I said like I literally said fuck it that's gonna die I'll, I'll use some bit clips from one of the podcasts but I'm gonna do Chasing Edges I love talking about it I know about that world because I've lived it and like earned some of the knowledge and been curious about it. Why would I not talk about this? Like I love leadership and I'll 
preach personal leadership through this new platform. But at the same time, anyways, like that was my kind of jumping point where it's like, like one, it didn't have to be perfect, but two, I just needed to go. And I think it was what I was trying to get at, but yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that I admire about football sports in general is there's a clear winner and loser, right? It's all right. This team scored more points. You had more tackles. Like there's a very clear, like way of differentiating wins and losses. With podcasts, it's a lot more amorphous. With writing, you don't know what winning and looking, winning and losing looks like. So how do you judge your creative acts or the things that are more creatively inclined for if they're getting better and if you're actually winning? Yeah, I think that's fun just because I think it's based off feel. Like, yeah. like you'll know when you're winning and losing. Your physiology follows suit. Like you, if you keep, in essence, winning and in the process you're talking about, you're talking about the process and enjoying the process when there's no scoreboard up there. Like, yeah, it's really important to like, at some point put your book out there and figure out if it sells or not. But like at the same point, like there's years before that you get to that point. And so again, tracking that subjective experience is really important and understanding how you feel has tangible value, but we don't track that, you know? Like, mm. like, so like, it's, it's really hard to go to war with yourself every day if you're basing everything off emotion and feel, but it, it but it, so it's really important to know those emotions, know that physiology and move forward because you know where you want to go. And so like, I don't think people lack that they, they're writing for an end game of a book or a blog, or, or if you're recording conversations to put a podcast out there, but like, or whatever it ends up being like any of these want need, but like some days you're not going to feel like it, like okay, those are, the, those are the biggest days to overcome. Or like some days you're not going to want to go under the lights, but you still got to go. And I get, I get in that argument in the field all the time with how guys practice now. There's all these trackables where like, oh, guys aren't ready to practice today um, or they work too hard, they're too sore because and all these CNS stats and heart rate variability and all these things, like very rarely in a football season does anybody feel 100% on game day. So why would we not practice? So like, I just think it... it all these tracking things um, in the realm of sports performance impedes uh, performance at times. But like now when you get into like the tracking field, that doesn't impede performance. That only adds to the value of refinement in the process, in, in my opinion, where it's like, okay, I know that I can still produce pages when I feel bad. And I know I can produce pages when I'm dialed and I feel good. It's okay. Now, like what, like asking questions about what influences these process days, is it like, are you tracking your like are you tracking your sleep are you tracking what you're eating are you tracking who you're around are you tracking like who's taking and giving energy in your life and then now this process and this creation of art outside of performance and competition where you can compete every day like i think it's more important to track feel and then like yeah obviously you want to try and correlate between feel and production but i think everything can be tangibilized and like Mm -hmm. in my world like i can tangibilize your state at any point in the day like how fast are you breathing? How am I breathing? Like in in that realm, your breath is always a tangible influence on your psychology. Like, are you stressed out? You're going to be a higher vertical mouth breather or just even, they're always just these little microscopic differences. But like now if I can control my state and like, that's why I'm a breath coach. Cause I love the fact that I can, like I have more control over the unknown of the chaotic environment of the world, particularly the creation world. I know I can breathe myself into a better state. And so now it's like, okay, now I have some agency over like my ability to control my state. I have agency in this chaotic world where now 
one, I've track, been tracking my experience and I know when I feel like this, I can produce. Okay, how do I produce? And how do I keep enjoying this process? Like, how do I make a game? Like, again, like, because like, I'm not, if I'm not putting something under the lights, how do I make a game out of wins? Like, how can I make wins and losses in the process? And like, with my guys, like, like I'll have guys keep points, like when they do all the recovery stuff or all their breath work, like, hey, you get three points here. Hey, get this. Like, all I need is 35 points this week from you. Like get it, get it how you feel. And the same thing with writing. Maybe it's a page number, but maybe it's a brainstorm or pulling. Like you need, I need thirty-five different points from the research I've done, and like, and we need to put in order. Like this, you, you, like I think again, like life is a game. Like life's a fun ass, awesome experience game. But you have to constantly like put effort into keeping it a game. And I think, and that's where like I, I joked about it earlier, where like football is extrapolated into a, it's a kids' game for grown-ups in essence. But like. Like in essence, the the goal is to whatever it is, grow up as late as possible, and you can do that. Like people, I've seen so many people have what looks like a monotonous job to me, freaking love it, mm-hmm. and it's because they they make a game out of it, they enjoy their company, they push each other. There's there's so many different ways to excel in the process if you're not under the lights. So you you've brought up breath work a few times, and I'm curious, someone listening right now. They, they're like, oh, wow, I'm mouth breathing right now. Why, why is that a bad thing to mouth breathe, first of all? And what are a, a, breath, a breath work practice that they could do right now that could help improve their physiology? Yeah, uh, in the simplest form, just shut your mouth and like a lot of your problems go away. But it's just it takes consciousness and awareness. So it's challenging for humans because it's, it's focus, it's neuroplasticity to keep bringing back to their um, but the, in, in the simplest form, there's 28, 20, the nose cleans, humidifies the air, lower breath, triggers nitric oxide that perfuses more of, of a full lung, gets oxygen to the full lung. Um, the biggest surface, it's a lower breath anatomically. So the surface of the biggest surface area of the lung is at the bottom of the lung. And so all these, uh, again, uh, benefits compound. And so now the mouth is a tool for like tidal volume. So gets most volume of air in and out the fastest and like it's a benefit for performance but at rest it's a problem so i i approach breath i solve everybody's sleep first as far as how you breathe and then like i solve your breath at rest because if you can't breathe right at rest you're not going to breathe right in performance and it's really simple from that aspect but people don't understand that like if you're breathing through your mouth short shallow more rapid um, you're actually shortcutting yourself because you need, like, in essence, like you're hyperventilating very subtly and hyperventilating just means breathing in excess of metabolic demand. And what happens is eventually your veins and arteries, even blood flow to your brain constricts because your body actually needs carbon dioxide to be present to release oxygen off the hemoglobin, the red blood cell. So people don't understand this fragile little balance, but like first and foremost breathe through your nose all the way through zone two cardio like like so like everything weightlifting try and breathe through your nose for a month or two months really it's like 45 days to 60 days and your the benefits aerobic capacity diaphragmatic strength and endurance all these things compound and you just become a much better more energetic higher mood human and then uh like breath practices not rocket surgery like breath there's only so much you can do with an inhale and an exhale Ideally, I'd like to be mechanically sound and like I have to be pretty hands on to fix that. Like a functional breath is in through the nose, light and low, quiet breath. Um, Like I always have people like take a big breath in through your mouth. What rises? My chest. Take a big breath in through your nose. 
stomach rises like your breath it needs to be lower for that that oxygen point the ability to brace the back that access the lower lung the more surface area perfused oxygen all these things um but if you're not mechanically sound all we're playing with is the inhale and the exhale and that's your remote control so like i i have everybody feel their carotid that the, their neck get a really good feel on your pulse take a big strong inhale through your nose and then a long slow exhale through your nose and you'll feel your respiratory sinus arrhythmia and that's the connection of your breath to your heart in essence like when the diaphragm's an umbrella i'm using my hands if you're just listening and when you inhale it flattens it not only pulls uh your lungs down but also pulls your heart down so the inhale and this is the remote control now everybody knows what remote control does but an inhale accelerates your heart rate the volume goes up the exhale slows the heart rate our problem in society today is most people are wired a little too hot so or they're too sympathetic or they're agitated stress like all these mental um, health issues are around but we don't realize that our physiology is speaking a language to our brain to keep us in this state we can breathe ourselves out of this state in simplest forms the first I, I i teach physiology as a language it's a language that the whole everybody right now needs to relearn because nobody speaks the language so in the simplest form, the first two steps of that, nose is parasympathetic or down-regulatory, calming. Mouth is sympathetic or up-regulatory, fight and flight. Rest and digest, fight and flight. And then now, now that you know what anatomically you're sp supposed to be breathing through for the benefits, but also for the down-regulatory parasympathetic tone, now we get to the inhale and exhale. Inhale, sympathetic, up-regulatory, it's accelerating your heart rate. Exhale, parasympathetic, down territory. Spend a lot more time on your exhales, and it's as simple as slow breathing. Like there's so there's so much um, awesome research out there on like literally like five six seconds in, five six seconds out, and then now you can just staircase it. So in for six, out for six, through your nose. Now you do one two, one two ratios. Inhale to exhale. In for three, out for six. In for four, out for eight. Whatever works for you. And use this, I use this with uh, my, my humans uh, to transition states because I, I think it's a, an easy, tangible mental skill that everybody wants. I want to be able to show up for the right people in the right manner or the right activity and opportunity in the right state. And I call these masks. I, I, I think the, like, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything is, is a little overplayed out. Or like you're supposed to be the same person all day. Like, yeah, from like a character and morality standpoint, but you, people don't get the same you and they shouldn't because like, like mm -hmm. when I'm in the weight room, you're going to get a different Brian than like that's going to go be the fun uncle or that's going to go give a Yeah. Or yeah, that go give some presentation. So I, I say master your masks and then breath is how you transition and control your mm -hmm. state through, through this, these transitions. Like so many people struggle to like not bring work home with them with, that have kids uh, or to like a dinner, whatever it ends up being, or they want to wake up and be this energetic human and get into this mask to go attack the day. Well, you need some tools to get and get ready. That's outside of caffeine or anything that's like, like you have to reach for and create dependency on. You don't have to depend on your breath. It's always there, but it's, it's, you're either a victim to what's going on or you're in control of it. So it's a worthy endeavor to learn how to control your breath and learn how to breathe yourself in these better states. And it takes three to five minutes of slow breathing to down reg. And like, of, again, tan, I try and tangibilize every mental skill. I put, I literally put, sometimes I'll swipe my hand over my face to put a mask on, but 
now physical mm. physiologically we have so many tangible markers that people don't even realize if like so after you finish working out next time you'll probably notice that your mouth is dry if you worked out pretty hard okay now can i breathe to mm. a point where my, my mouth salivates that transition from sympathetic fight and flight to rest and digest the, sal- the, the salvation gland is part of that that response so now i can tangibilize it for someone that i'm not there to see their heart rate drop on their their info or whatever hey breathe until your mouth salivates and then now you start recovering before you even walk out the door of the gym but the same thing works for like so many people again don't realize what's happening in their physiology there's this concept called email apnea where people get emails and they hold their breath for a few seconds or they, they, they immediately start breathing higher because their job's on the line or, oh, I forgot that business call or whatever. In through the nose, extend the exhale. Very simple things. One, 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 two ratio. You can breathe it into like one, two, two ratio, which is like any two, two numbers is in reference to inhale, exhale. Everything else is in reference to a box. Box breathing is another down regulator, just a trick on slow breathing. But it's four seconds in, four second hold, four second out, four second exhale hold. It's just tricking your, your whole, like it tricking you into slow breathing. And so in essence, like, <laughs> but like you want to use this language to again, get in control of your state. And you can always get out of those like e- easy triggers of like emails and phone calls and stuff. And like, but make time for yourself. Okay. I need three minutes. I'm going to breathe like after this call. And then, then I'll go, then I'll go go to this meeting or whatever. It's just like, it's really simple. And then then it gets the nuances and complexity of it are really fun down the road where I can measure your CO2 tolerance. I can, I can literally measure the expansion of your rib cage and we can get your mechanics dialed so that like, Oh, and learn, teach how to be mobile and, and, and the rib cage and create lung capacity where, Oh, I have a bigger lung available to me now. Cause like modern society is not really built for, to be like a optimal breather. We're bent over, we're driving, we're sitting in desks, we're doing all these things. We're just destroying our lung capacity and access to it. Um, so you teach, you learn these tools again. Now a bigger lung means a slower breath. I want to breathe slower. The problem right now is not like, how do I get more jacked up and like Wim Hof stuff and like that, the faster breathing and the holotropic breathing, all that kind of stuff has its time and place. Um, it's good, really good morning activity, really good to stimulate yourself. If you're doing cold exposure to do it before then. Cause like the reason why Wim Hof and them get jacked up, like the fast breathing, they're spending, you'll see them. It's 100% inhale, 50% exhale, and they do some tempo to it. <sighs> They're spending a lot of time on the inhale. They're going up. What else is happening? Norepinephrine's jumping up, basically adrenaline in that capacity. They're getting more sympathetic, and they're also dump, they're hyperventilating, so they're breathing in excess of metabolic demand, so they're driving CO2 out of the system, but they're just packing their cells with oxygen. So I, I look at it as a bell curve. So here's homeostasis, this uh, starting line. Now you get jacked up, you keep getting jacked up, and then we're gonna throw you in the cold. And so now you have prepared yourself for a stressor. So you can hit, you're more likely to handle the cold because you have the norepinephrine and you have more oxygen to be prepared for what a usual response is, is an apnea in the cold. <laughs> like different variants of hold. So like your like their stuff makes sense, but like there's not a lot of times in life where that makes a lot of sense. But in essence, there's this whole spectrum of hyperventilation and slow breathing that you can find what works for you, but it's not it's not tough. It's literally like slow breathing and fast breathing. You can breathe yourself where you want to go, but there's obviously a bunch of nuanced tactics there. 
Talk to me about the the cold and the sauna exposure. I've heard you talk about this on other podcasts. I've I enjoy doing this like just as a way of being, and it's really helped me. I don't know why it's helping me, but it makes me feel good. So I'm like, All right, I should follow that call if it's a little challenging and it makes me feel good. Yeah, like lean into it. So what what's the science there? What's going on? Why is it actually beneficial to go in the sauna and oh, go man. in the ice? There's so many reasons, but um, one, <laughs> one like I don't think you need to go much farther past. It feels good. Like what else in your life do you? Why do you have to? Yeah, we. I want to know curiosity wise, but I wish I was like just stupid and ignorant to the fact where like, it just feels good. I'll do that, you know? And I I think we can, we can get back to that a little bit just because we're a little removed from nature. But one of the biggest reasons is because our bodies are built to handle it. And we, people don't realize that like the two biggest stressors on humans used to be environmental stress and food scarcity. We have those covered in spades. We have DoorDash, like we have AC heat. We like, we never leave a 70 degree, 70 degree bubble. And I say it too much. People go from, their bubble from their house to their car to work and their car back home and they never leave. And we have these systems for thermoregulation that are magical. They're so cool. And, and we're built to be these endurance humans and sweat and do all these things like our skin, like not a lot of animals can sweat and manage temperature like us. Like we are a phenomenon and we choose not to get exposed to it. And so I think this is a little shot of nature back into everybody's life where uh, you you feel good because again the body's like the body has like three reactions to the cold and in essence it can determine that it's not cold and you don't got to do anything it can mechanically respond which in essence like shivering is the mechanical response to heat up the body and then it can burn brown fat and then dump, start dumping different hormones into your system and but endorphins come with the exposure anyway so you get the nor epinephrine and you get the dopamine and everybody wants dopamine. And like, but this is earned dopamine, which is a whole different factor. And Huberman and others, people can say this way better than me, but like, that's a motivation thing. Like you want plentiful stores of dopamine and you want it available and we chase it and like, we can get it from chips and we can get it from porn and get all from all this crap, but you can earn it. And like, that's how you, and then like now you subtract different other influences. But besides the point, it's a feel good chemical that we want and drives us forward. And we're in the essence, like I'm not going to get too esoteric because there are actual physical benefits, but it's ice tub for me, forced meditation. My mind is nowhere else. How many other times in the day are you, do you feel like that? Very rarely. So I try and get in the ice or a cold shower as much as possible and focus and focus on my breath. It's hard to do and nobody wants to do it. It's like making your bed. Like, okay, like I'm going to do this hard thing that also makes me feel good. And I also like coming home to a made bed whatever but like you're again you're just building a harder human to kill and like in my essence you're it's resiliency and resiliency and like the adaptive nature of a human people pay millions of dollars for like people want these type of humans and it's the same reason why college doesn't mean dick because most of the time you go and show up to a job and they train you anyways they don't even care about they want to know if you have the tangible skills to learn what they do and potentially adapt to sales calls or whatever it ends up being and be adaptive in that sense they didn't they hadn't taught you that and like that's why i think like this ability to adapt um is a separator but besides the point but also i don't like the dopamine concept is pretty key in addiction as well and so if you can get your dopamine from a natural source that is also making your cells harder to kill 
and part of the now we'll get into the actual benefits, not just the the mental capacity, because I I just love the concept of struggling as medicine and like treating pain with pain. Mm. I think it's so massively underrated. It just frustrates me that people shy away from struggle and pain when really, and I'm reading this awesome book right now. I wish I had understood it and could translate it because it's just blowing my mind. It's called An Anatomy of Pain, and I can't I can't even pronounce the author's name, but it's so it's it's. It's misunderstood how we treat pain and how we've learned to cope with pain, how all these drugs got into the market anyways from thousands of years ago, how two research articles dictated the majority of the opioid crisis, all this stuff. Really cool book. But it it basically says that... It's called An Anatomy of Pain by Dr. Abdul Galik Lal Khan. Yeah, you it's a very it. difficult you name to pronounce, but I just wanted yeah. to make sure people could yeah, search it if they wanted. Book, but it just it, it's opening my eyes again to it's and maybe this is confirmation bias, but a doctor's job is not to make you pain free; it's to, to make you healthy. And doctors are doctors of medicine; they're not doctors of optimal health. They have knowledge in the whole physiological Krebs cycle, everything to do with the body. Really cool, but they're professionals with hammers. That uh, medicine is one of their only tools. And then they can address sleep and all these things. Um, that's a di- that's a whole different rant. But the cold is is uh, an illustration of treating this pain with pain. Like a lot of and mm. again, I'm gonna keep naming books because I love books. But Awareness by Anthony DeMello, one of my favorite books of all time. All these books have changed my perspective on like what is comfort, what's like really our problem, what's not, what have we identified with. But like we have identified this pain-free lifestyle is being beneficial because it breeds comfort and it's complete opposite. And so everything I want to do, like I, I said earlier that like light, like obstacles and pain and suffering are my lighthouse now. And this fear and anxiety of putting things out into the world are lighthouses for me now. Like the, the cold tub's no different, but back to the benefits, um, literally. So you'll hear like people throw around these words like heat shock and cold shock proteins what's really happening is our body is a Petri dish and like in a very simple illustration of this, like, like if you look at a Petri dish, if you expose it to really hot temperatures and cold temperatures, weak cells that can't handle those temperatures die and the, the remaining cells get fortified. So uh, now you're just built. I, I always love be hard to kill concept, but the heat, the heat, particularly below 40 degrees and, or sorry, the cold below 40 degrees and heat above 180, the better research I think is done above 200, but, in that realm, the as long as your sauna is above 180, dry sauna, awesome. Um, there's really cool research done at 212 as well. But anyways, but like the coolest part about these benefits on top is uh, sauna. Now you get into mimics aerobic capacity. I've had a bunch of overweight clients just uh, implement nasal breathing and sauna and they just shed weight and because it mimics an aerobic workout. We do longer sessions and things like that, but they can sit there and listen to podcasts. Or I've had people watch Netflix in the sauna right now and things like that. I don't care, but it gets you mimicking this movement and movement is the eternal medicine of the human body and nobody can argue it. Same with strength training in that realm. It just, that's longevity 101. And now the sauna gives you this aerobic capacity hit and then now you're killing weak cells. You're it, it, the great research on red, like, red blood cells, white blood cells. If you time up the sauna as a tool post-workout hypertrophy, you're talking um, IGF-1 growth hormone, and like and then now it gets into like the ability to thermoregulate even better same as military goes to arizona and does different heat treatments before they go to Af- went to afghanistan and things like that 
it's those adaptations and resiliencies that like is so readily available that a minimal gym membership or if you make the investment in a smaller sauna whatever it ends up being but the now you start pairing these two little these magical deals together and that's where i love the sauna ice cycles three minutes up to your neck in the ice uh heavy sauna sweat depending on temperature is subjective but like get uncomfortable in there sweat heavy back to three minutes up to your neck in the ice another heavy sweat and then finishing cold just a dunk is all that's required i get aggressive with me and my my athletes where we we hold our breath under the ice for a while it gives you a harder like norepinephrine dump you get this little more zen high almost um but the the magic here is we're using our body's ability to thermoregulate which in essence so like people always scared it like and i i, I even skipped my favorite point in the esoteric side of it but besides the point um what's your favorite what's your favorite part it of that reframes so people's brains and their thinking because we've been so conditioned we've been on the conveyor belt everybody's listened to their mom and said like hey if you go outside without a hat and gloves you're gonna get sick and die wrong super wrong and you're you're just you're actually if you don't do that you're actually getting weaker you know and so i think it's funny and like that's what i try and do that's what awareness did for me that book by anthony Demello. it changed my perspective it reframed my brain on all these things i was identifying like with like my athletic history and that title in life um but the cold does that really quick and then i've been in extreme levels where i've hiked in just my shorts barefoot in the snow things like that and then or cut a hole in lake minnetonka minnesota and got three minutes in the cold and then stood out there and worked out for an hour like all these things like and i didn't get sick i probably got healthier so it's just like in that realm the ability to reframe somebody's mind is huge and i think the cold is just like a gateway to okay what else do i have wrong what else taught me and was taught to my life that's completely and utterly wrong and that's the power of questions again but to the last benefit of this contrasting heat so like uh heat vasodilator accelerates the heart rate does all these things um dilator meaning expand in size and then now you get into the cold the body's reaction to cold um part of the mechanics of shivering uh the next line of defense is shunting of the blood to protect the vitals so now you have all these little muscles on your veins and arteries that are built for this that again we don't use going from our our house to our car to our work to car and back home we need this this elasticity we need this ability and that's where some really out of shape people when they get in the cold the first time it hurts it hurts it hurts really bad particularly feet and hands and they'll get out and they'll jump out i've had black belt in jujitsu had been really comfortable for a while jumped out after 45 seconds in the cold when i try and i then most of my women have a higher pain tolerance and they stay in there no problem and so it's just weird it's fun i do have my own little social experiments going on with it but but in essence same way i've had a delta force guy hop out like one of our best soldiers and like it again relationship with cold water and pain has a different relationship from selection and stuff like that so it's just it's fun to see that the nuances but that that vasoconstriction starting in the cold vasodilation you're actually pumping all this blood and lymph through your body and like anytime i get a sore back from like deadlifting or squatting i saw on ice and it gets it just gets obliterated and people don't understand that mm. fluctuation of soreness like we we understand pumps and everything mechanically and like the industrial world but we were a pump and so you can flush out pain and soreness there and you feel incredible after like don't don't listen to anything else i said just go do it and see how you feel and if you are not euphoric like 
holler at me, you probably did it wrong. So it's just like, <laughs> in that world, it's just like, that's a great recovery modality. Um, I've had NHL guys lose as many as like eight, 900 calories doing an hour of that. And wow. so it's stealing. It's literally, the sauna is a, a health and benefit stealing. It's absolute robbery. And hmm. in that realm, like, that's why I push people towards it. Same with the breath. And now you can always make your breath, again, tangible variable there. Because now the beauty of the cold, like I call the cold tub my, uh, my basically my stadium for athletes. Because I can't stress my athletes out too many different ways um, without hurting them, you know. So like I get cold and suffocation. And like that's my world. And people are scared of suffocating and people are scared of the cold. And so if you can get them in there and teach them that like if you control your breath in an environment, you can own the environment. Really quickly, they'll start to pick up the skills and... I usually don't overcoach people before they get in the cold or like say the stuff I've said on here already because I want to see how they re- they naturally react and most people it's <gasps> or like very short, very shallow. Nobody intuitively responds to the tool set that we've actually been given to downregulate. So now like how many times did they breathe the first three minutes? Most of the times it's 100 plus. My metric for myself because I've, like, I've done thousands of reps at this point is like I take eight breaths in three minutes. I, I go through box breathing. I, I, I do one rescue breath because like a big problem, like you, uh, anybody with kids out there um, that hyperventilate when they get upset and things like that. The problem is not that they need to quote unquote breathe. Like people have always told you to breathe, but nobody's coached you how to breathe in that essence. Um, <gasps> that hyperventilation, they're full on air. Like, like they're breathing wrong at this point. Like we need to get them to exhale yeah and get that next breath so the oxygen gets in, they don't stay this plugged up person of oxygen. Um, but anyways, we teaching real-time tools how to handle stress and anxiety, now you become more resilient um, in any scenario where it's like, okay, like I'm getting anxious before I go public speak. Okay, I can, I can regulate and then, because then people don't even understand breathing and public speaking or just all these extended exhales of talking. And people get yeah. worn out and their energy's blasted after that. It's because they probably didn't prepare breath-wise mentally. You can't not expend energy talking, um, but you can be more prepared for it with higher CO2 tolerance and things like that. So it's just like, that's why I love the heat and cold, but it's also why I love the breath as this intersection between mind and body to give you some control back in stressful scenarios. I love the, the tip to track the breath in the cold because previously I... What I, what I do is I take cold showers. And what happens is to figure out if I am comfortable with the cold, I ask myself, can I pee right now in the shower? And I, I can normally, and I do. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, like if I'm comfortable with this cold, then I'm comfortable. If I'm so comfortable that I can pee in this scenario, then I'm so comfortable that if a high stress-inducing scenario happens in my day-to-day, I will be calm as well. But the breath is a little more yeah, it's, 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 scientific there. But, but dude, you're still speaking physiology. And like, that's the thing where, again, people get butter, like butterflies because they're, they're shifting to parasympathetic or sh- shifting to sympathetic. So like rest and digest, like pissing and shitting is part of digestion. So if I can mm-hmm. always make, same as like the salivation is uh, rest and digest, part of that process. But people get butterflies and they get nervous. Why? Because they're shifting into sympathetic mode. So if you get butterflies or like tight buttholes, a real thing, like, but like, like same guy, same with guys have to piss before a game or like they have to take a dump before the game. They're just, they're physiologically transitioning masks and it's happening whether you Mm. want it or not. And so now, okay, 
how do I get more control of this? But I do. I love that you found that intuitively that, okay, like this is those I'm still in control and like still calm enough Mm -hmm. to do this. And it's just physiology. Like that's the only language our brain speaks. (laughs) And like, yeah. Well, I'm, I like to end these podcasts with a challenge for people. A challenge points to the place in your heart. You take all this information, you learn, but then it's like, what do you actually do with it? Do you have a challenge that comes to mind from everything we spoke about or something we haven't? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many challenges in the physiological world. I, um, I just let's uh, because I think I gave people enough kind of get go to hit the sauna ice and enough tools in the breath work world. Um, I would challenge people when you initially get the thought to go do something or create something or move or work out or eat healthy, whatever it is, to fucking go. And because you need to realize who you're fighting and you're fighting your physiology. And the reason you're fighting your physiology is because we live in a world now where everything, all of our bare necessities are handed to us. And so the couch, like literally, I tell people like, oh, it's tough to get off the couch. It's because you're doing everything right. You're doing everything your physiology, you're completely right to sit on the couch. And like just people to know they're okay there why are you okay there? Because everything in your physiology says when I have food, water, shelter, the bare necessities to relax and save up energy for the next, we'll, we'll call it shelter, build, hunt, fight, mating, all these things. Like That's what we're supposed to save energy for. But right now, those no longer exist. So we need to understand that everything that feels good about that couch is literally our physiology, our literally a millennia of evolution telling you to do, do, and you're doing the right thing. So you have to create this friction point that says, I no longer want this comfort. I want to do something and I want to create. You need to fight your physiology. And 101, you're always going to be fighting yourself. And that's why I love books like The War of Art and things like that, because like it identifies who we're fighting and it identifies who the problem is. And nine times, 99 times out of 100, it's you. And you need to realize how to get in control of yourself. I think the breath is a great tool for that. But you need to understand when you don't want to move is when you got to move. Brian Peters, ladies and gentlemen, all of his links are down below. Where is the one place you would like to point people to connect with you further? Yeah, just uh, direct access to me is uh, Brian underscore Peters 10. And then everything chasingedges.com and the podcast and everything's there and my performance stuff's there i'm transitioning websites right now hopefully tomorrow everything will be up on chasingedges.com so but uh no dude i appreciate you having me on dude you're electric and i I said it before the podcast but dude everything about what you're doing and how you're doing it literally just screams hustle and curiosity and dude that's a a winning recipe and i i literally am so hyped to see where you go um and uh, I know you don't need my validation or anything like that because uh, it's truly it's authentic in you. And I, I hope the best for you, brother. Brian, thank you so much for the kind words and for the masterclass in high performance secrets. Thank you so much for spending the time here today. Really grateful for you. Easy. Be well.